You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Good afternoon and welcome to Conversations and Meditations. I'm your host, Virgil Varix, and today is November 24th, 2018, and uh, let's get right into the show. Okay, so we've talked about a lot of different things in the show prior, and some things I've I've kind of brushed upon and mentioned and not really uh, have had that much, you know, focus on recently is concepts and theories of justice. Um, I've mentioned Robert Nozick before, and I'm pretty positive I mentioned John Rawls as well. And today I kind of wanted to go over multiple theories of justice uh, and, you know, from John Rawls and uh, Nozick, but also to other thinkers throughout the 20th century and uh, before that. So, um, you know, before we even get to defining anything or talking about anything, let's go ahead and figure out, um, you know, what types of questions are we talking about? You know, um, there's, you know, two categories and they're interconnected when we talk about justice. There's the personal and then there's the political, you know, and, um, you know, first we have to focus on, you know, how should we treat one another? You know, that's one aspect of, you know, figuring this out. And, you know, also what should the law be and what should the law of the land be? You know, how should we go about dealing with um, injustices within society? Um, and the other thing is, you know, how should society be organized? What is the most uh, beneficial and uh, least coercive method of, you know, setting up society and dealing with individuals within that society. So, you know, uh, the other types of questions, you know, we that derive from this discussion, you know, how should we distribute things? And, you know, uh, especially how should we distribute things that we value? So, you know, so what do people deserve and why? So this comes, uh, this goes into uh, questions of income and wealth, you know, rights and responsibilities, you know, power and opportunities public and private positions of power, you know, and honors that people receive, like the Nobel Prize and X, Y, you know, and the sort. So, you know, when we focus on justice, I think the first thing we have to talk about is ethics, right? And I'm not going to go into ethics that much today. There's going to be another show completely on ethics, but at least let's focus on the two basic approaches to ethics. So first is the consequential approach, which is, you know, right and wrong depends on the consequences of the actions. And then there's um, categorical, which is right or wrong depends on the fundamental absolute rights and or duties or responsibilities. So I guess there's three ways to view these types of issues, you know, that we we have in society and, and at the world at large. So first, I think it's first by looking at, you know, the welfare and happiness of, of, of a group of people. And I think that focuses on consequences, you know, and then Second is to focus on the freedom, 
you know, uh, and then from there we can, you know, derive, uh, kind of drive uh, rights and responsibilities. And then third is to look at virtue, which is pretty much goodness. And uh, we'll, I'll get a little bit into what, what is meant by goodness and what other people throughout time have meant by goodness and what does that exactly mean for us today. So first, you know, one of the main theories I kind of want to talk about, and this is kind of, you know, uh, not talked about as much as it used to be, but it's still a main theory within justice and uh, is utilitarianism. So, um, you know, the idea of it is to maximize welfare and happiness. Uh, and it's a consequentialist type of uh, point of view. And, you know, the, uh, the definition is a doctrine that is useful, uh, that the useful is uh, is the good and that the uh, determining co- consideration of right conduct should be useful of its consequences. Specifically, a theory that uh, that the aim of action should be the largest possible balance of pleasure over pain or the greatest happiness over the greatest number. So again, you know, specifically the theory that the aim of action should be the largest possible balance of pleasure over pain or the greatest happiness over the greatest number. And the two main philosophers throughout time have talked about this are people like uh, Jeremy Bentham um, and John Stuart Mill. And for Jeremy Bentham, it was just, you know, pretty much just mere calculation in the short run of how things were done. For John Stuart Mill, on the other hand, it was, you know, utility over the long run, which necessitates maximum personal liberty and the tolerance of of dissent. Um, So a quote here from Jeremy Bentham kind of gives you a, a little bit more of an idea of what he was talking about. So he said in the Principles of Morals and Legislation that nature has placed mankind under the governance of two sovereign masters, pain and pleasure. It is for them alone to point out what we have ought to do as well as to determine what we shall do. Bentham goes on to talk about in the uh, introduction of principles of morals and legislation about the principle of utility. And the principle of utility is an action that may uh, be said to be comfortable or to be comfortable to or dictated by the principle of utility when in like manner the tendency which has to augment the happiness of the community is greater than any which it has to diminish it. So that's just, you know, a basic understanding of utilitarianism and again I'm not trying to go too in-depth with the other uh, modes because I'm going to be honest with you. The other methods of understanding justice are great and I think they're important and I think people should listen you know, to what I'm saying and maybe go out on their own. And you know, the books I mentioned, go out there and find these books and if you're really interested in utilitarianism. But uh, ideally for today, I, I really want to focus on Rawls and um, Nozick. So again, if I'm not giving a full – you know, break down of utilitarianism. Uh, again, I'll be more than happy to do a complete show on utilitarianism and break down the actual works of these people, uh, Bentham and uh, Mill aside. Um, but okay, so th- I guess the next type of theorist out there would be Immanuel Kant, you know, and uh, him and his introduction of, you know, the categorical imperatives. So, you know, Kant rejects utilitarianism because majorities aren't always right. You know, uh, morality must be based on reason. Connected to freedom, sets us, which this sets us apart from animals, right? Uh, morality can't be based on desires or preferences or just whims. Um, but what counts is intention for, for Kant. You know, it's not necessarily the consequences. So it's the intentions of the act versus the consequences. So an example of this would be, um, for instance, um, a mil- the military decides to do a drone strike on a particular area where they know there's some type of terrorists. And the intention is to, you know, remove the terrorists from the situation and from the environment and free the people. 
But let's say that the consequences is they do remove the terrorists, but then there is some collateral damage and civilians have died. Well, for Kant, what really counts is the intention, not the consequences. So you could see how a lot of these types of you know thinking of justice has kind of you know intertwined itself within modern society with modern politics and as well as our you know uh, our view towards uh, you know combat and our, our role in combat um but for for Khan its responsibility is not self interest what's important and freedom means following you know your responsibility and not being a slave to your desires so as Kant said you know all our knowledge begins with the sense with senses proceeds uh, then to the understanding and ends with reason. There is nothing higher than reason, according to Kant. So when we get to talk to Kant, we talked about uh, – I mentioned his categorical imperatives, right? And um, pre- primarily what do they offer and uh, how do they kind of place themselves in today's society? So um, the first imperative is universalization or universalize, which means uh, in Kant's words, act only according to that maxim whereby you can at the same time will be that it should be universal – should become a universal law. So again, act only according to that maxim where you can at the same time will that it should become a universal law. So this means like – so for instance, if everyone stopped and fed the homeless, uh, the question would be would this result in good everywhere? And the answer you know, according to Kant would be yes. So you can see how that kind of uh, take is on from there. And then – you know something. Something we have to talk about before I continue on with you know some of his ideas is the implications that you know we as a people you know because I didn't get I didn't really start this off with this but I think I should probably go back and you know uh, bring this up. You know the reason why justice is so important to talk about and the reason why you know all this is is essential. I mean I honestly believe because. If we can understand you know, these types of questions and these types of you know, um, ideas, then I think we can really put a, a dent into the miseducation of, of ourselves and miseducation of society. So that's the reason why you know, I think specifically justice because justice is such an important concept, such an essential concept to living as a civilian in, in the world and also being a – a person that's trying to do good out there. You care about justice. You want to fight for justice. You want to fight for all the things that will promote that. So you know, this is kind of where where this intention has come to start this show. And again, sorry for interrupting. You know, concept, uh, categorical imperatives. But I felt in the moment like that. That's that's something that needs to be said. But you know, Kant's second categorical imperative. Uh, as I digressed, um, is to treat persons as ends. So. Uh, as Kant said, act in such a way that you treat humanity, whether in your own person or in the person of any other, never merely as a means to an end, but always at the same time as an end. So if you feel the need to feed the homeless uh, person and, and you do it, uh, you know, you're not necessarily thinking about the consequences or the benefits to yourself or to myself. You know, I'm, I treat the person as an end. So if I feel inclined to do so because I feel good about myself afterwards – According to Kant, you know, I treat the person as a means to an end, not the end itself. So you could see how even some of this stuff right here has kind of influenced our ways of, of actual uh, charity and actual giving. Um, but you know, there's a lot of different things that you can take Kant's two categorical imperatives and you know, apply it 
tr- traditional, uh, you know, psychological tests as, you know, um, the trolley story, uh, Dr. Organ story. Um, there's a ton of different things you could put out there and, and figure out. So the next thing I'd like to talk about is uh, libertarianism. And, and when I say libertarianism, I don't necessarily mean uh, the Libertarian Party or modern libertarian politics necessarily. I mean this straightly from a political philo- uh, a political uh, philosophy type of point of view. So I'm not talking about modern libertarianism uh, like politicians and policies. I'm talking specifically about the principles and particularly the principles of uh, John Locke and Robert Nozick. So uh, – and they, these people would be considered right liberals uh, just to be clear in terms of their policies and politics. They would be considered right liberals. So you know, like Kant, you know, uh, libertarians focus on uh, rights rather than consequences. So the main theory of freedom uh, is that you, know, you maximize the individual freedom of the individual with, throughout the state and throughout the environment. Uh, but also you minimize the government. You minimize the state. So um, an entitlement theory uh, such as the first developed by John Locke puts the right to private property first and foremost and couples it with the deep skepticism as to the wisdom and fairness of the government. You know, Locke argued that you know, what gives a person the right to a piece of property is the fact that you know, he has mixed his labor with it. You know, in other words, you know, he's worked and improved it. Um, as Locke said, you know, for his labor being the unquestionable property of the laborer, no man but he can have a right to what is once joined to at least where is uh, where there is enough as good left in common with others. Um, and you could see how you know these theories and these ideas have pushed on throughout society, pushed on throughout you know different countries, and some of these thinkers were foundational in terms of. Um, the principles that founded this country. Um, so another person we want to talk about is Robert Nozick, who was born in uh, 38 and died in early 2000s, actually in 2002. Um, you know, he was an American philosopher and he, he taught at Harvard University. Um, he was author of the influential book uh, on political philosophy uh, called Anarchy, State, and Utopia. It was written in 1974, as well as the other book, um, Political Explanations or Philosophical Explanations, excuse me. <laughs> Um, so Nozick, uh, you know, offered a refined version of Locke's entitlement theory. You know, uh, Nozick uh, argued that any attempt to enforce the redistribution of the redistribution of wealth according to some schema or pattern of necessarily, you know, or you know, or pattern necessarily violates the rights of the individual. Um, so when we talk about Nozick, we talk about the minimal state, right? So justice as respect is kind of the way. Uh, Nozick viewed it, you know, as uh, if we call Kant's principle of ends, uh, meaning that you know, act to treat others as a means, not as just an ends. You know, people can't be used as resources under you know uh, this type of uh, point of view. A state committed to distributive justice, you know, which means the idea of you know, which basically distributive concerns the nature of social just allocation of goods. You know, society which in which inequalities to outcome do not arise or would be considered a society guided by the principles of distributed justice. So the concept includes, you know, the availability of uh, quantity of goods, the process of by which goods are to be distributed and the resulting allocation of goods to the members of the society. So under um, Nozick, right, um, the state committed to distributive justice must treat its citizens as a means to a distributive end. 
So any such action or any such distributive nature is ultimately unethical uh, according to Nozick. Therefore, distributive justice can't be an ethical goal according to, uh, to Nozick. And when we talk about this, you know, we have to understand that this is ideally uh, – you know, a situation where we talk about distributive justice, distributive justice versus entitlements. You know, and distributive justice assumes that you know wealth is just a natural resource. You know, Nozick thinks that justice and wealth involves a recursive definition of entitlement. Uh, so first, you know, Nozick talks about justice and original acquisition of the actual wealth. Um, two, the justice in transaction, being able to trade that wealth for other things. And three, that no wealth is held justly except by combinations of when and two. So uh, – but also Nozick uh, mentions that you know, redistribution can't produce justice in holdings. So there may be unjust holdings because of past histories, but that doesn't make the theory of entitlement incorrect. You know, compare a state may in, uh, may in fact distribute wealth badly, but that doesn't affect the theory of distributive justice essentially. Um, but you know, there needs to be an entitlement theory of you know reification re, re, uh, if you want to get into that. And I think you know if we want to go into that, you know, basically one you know person who acquires a holding in accordance with the principle of justice is entitled to that holding. Two, a person who acquires a holding in accordance with the principle of justice and transfer from someone that is entitled to the holding is in, entitled to the holding. And three again, uh, repeating what I mentioned last time, but a little bit more, a little bit more, you know, meat is that no one is entitled to a holding by except of the repeated applications of one and two. So this is essential to understanding how wealth uh, is distributed within Nozick's view of uh, of the world. So Nozick believed that the minimal state is the most extensive state that can be justified, and any state more extensive violates people's rights. So for for Nozick, you know, only three states' uh, activities are allowed. So the enforcement of contracts, you know, free choice of individuals, you know, the uh, idea that the state should protect private property, including uh, the people themselves. Um, because we – for Nozick, there's a concept known as, you know, self-ownership, that you own your mind, your abilities, your ideas, your labor, all these things and that this all is, you know, under the umbrella of your private property. And then – States also have the incentive and the activities that should be allowed uh, for them to keep the peace, internal and external. And that can be um, more broad and more talked about uh, at a later time. But keeping the peace internally for Nozick is essential and external seems to be more so in, in the sense that it would affect the nation itself. So under Nozick's, you know, uh, theory of justice of himself, you know, paternalism, the idea that protecting people from themselves is totally not allowed. So an example of this would be legislation uh, like seatbelt laws, like the idea that, you know, you should put people – you should give people a ticket for not wearing a seatbelt. So again, I'm not saying I agree or disagree with any of these things. This is just what Nozick talked about. Uh, and again, another thing, another type of paternalism is uh, the drug war, you know, t telling people what they can and can't do with their bodies and what they can and can't put in their bodies. Um, another thing that's not allowed under, uh, under Nozick's uh, view um, is moral legislation. You know, you, you can't legislate uh, anything in terms of free individuals doing what they want to do with their bodies. So that comes into um, uh, same-sex relationships, same-sex marriage. Um, the ability for people to uh, 
engage in any types of relationships they want to. The, the ability for a person to um, engage in prostitution. All these types of legislation, uh, Nozick views that these legislations are moral legislations and they're not necessarily uh, good and they're violating the freedom of people to do what they want to do with their lives. So it's, again, not allowed in Nozick's view of uh, society. And you know, when it comes to um, your distribution of wealth and income, progressive taxation, much like what we have today in the United States and in most countries around the world, would also not be allowed. It would probably be something more similar to a flat tax or a consumption tax. So that's kind of Nozick in a nutshell and uh, kind of giving you a brief understanding of you know, his version of libertarianism and what that means uh, in effect, right? So I guess the next person we want to talk about is John Rawls. He was born in the 1920s, 1921 and actually uh, died in 2002 as well. And uh, something I want to mention before getting into talking about Rawls is that it's important that – to know that John Rawls is probably the most influential American political philosopher of the 20th century, right behind is Robert Nozick. And, uh, you know, he wrote the theory, A Theory of Justice in 1971. And both Nozick and Rawls were both uh, philosophy professors uh, at Harvard University. So, uh, you know, John Rawls argued for a view of justice that places the rights of the individual over the utility of any group of individuals or state. So when we talk about Rawls, we have to talk about you know, justice as fairness, you know, rights-based versus you know utilitarianism versus and libertarianism. You know, uh, for Rawls, there was something you know as there was something known as a social contract, right? And uh, this is a hypothetical agreement in the original position. You know, this was originally uh, t- coined by Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and then you know further expanded upon by uh, Thomas Hobbes in his book Leviathan and John Locke in his later writings. You know, so according to other social contract theorists, when the government fails to secure their rights, you know, according to Locke, or you know, satisfy the best interests of society, you know, otherwise, you know, according to uh, Rousseau, known as you know the general will, citizens can withdraw their obligation to obey or change the leadership through elections or any other means. Um, so for Rawls, you know, he defends two principles in order of uh, priority. So the first principle is we all have basic rights and equal rights, in particular with reference to our personal freedoms. The second principle is although we cannot expect everyone in society to enjoy equal wealth, equal health, equal opportunities, we can and should insist that all inequalities are to be every individual's advantage. So the two principles that emerge, like I mentioned, is you know the equal basic rights and liberties for all you know so examples would be uh, freedom of speech freedom of religion freedom from religion um uh you know basic stuff like that so this takes priority over utility mind you so that's important to know and it's an important distinction between Rawls and the utilitarians um so for Rawls you know inequalities are only permitted if they work to the advantage of the least well off people which is a little bit different. I'll get into the differences between him and Nozick in a second or maybe you know, touch upon the differences between him and Nozick. So you know, Rawls imagines an original position in which all of us are you know, unencumbered by any of our particular traits or interests. You know, in such a situation, you know, what would be rational for us to choose uh, to do uh, by the way of these principles according to which society should run? So Rawls conceives justice 
because he's off, you know, from that justice as fairness, right? Um, and this, you know, to, to further elaborate that, you know, this is Rawls's veil of ignorance. You know, what principles would we agree to in an original state of equality? We, you know, assume we were rational, self-interested, assume no one knew his or her own uh, ultimate place in society. How would we set, you know, how would we agree, how would we agree to make things equal? You know, how would we agree to do all these things? So Rawls, connect, Rawls connects justice with the concept of equality, but does a uh, but does a state have the right to redistribute our wealth as it sees fit in order to achieve equality? You know, the right to our possessions is another right not adequately addressed in theories such as Rawls. Uh, the right to property, known as entitlement, gives us the rise to the theory of justice, properly known as libertarianism, as I talked about earlier. So, you know, Rawls versus, you know, Nozick's point of view, you know, Rawls rejects the idea that people are entitled to all the fruits of their success. So Rawls gets into the idea that talents are not totally of their own doing. You know, uh, efforts is, is often a factor of good family upbringing, good community upbringing, right? Um, so Rawls rejects the idea of rewarding virtue, essentially. You know, like I said, talents, efforts, it's not all, it's not all you. Um, you know, the, the talents of society values are arbitrary, Rawls goes to talk about. You know, he, he mentioned that at one point, fresco painters were highly valued in 12th century Italy, you know, but, you know, computer programmers are highly valued. You know, now, you know, orders, you know, now athletes are highly valued, but in the past, um, philosophers and orders in Greece were highly valued. You know, you think about, um, the Chief Justice, how much he makes? A little bit over two hundred thousand, I would imagine. Look how much! Look how much somebody on TV like uh, Judge Joe Mathis or Judge Judy, probably in the hundreds of, of tens of millions, if not higher, in some certain cases, depending on their contracts. So you can see how a lot of this for Rawls is, um, in terms of the idea of rewarding virtue and talents, is really based. He thinks it's really arbitrary, and that a society values certain talents and you know skills, and those things change over time. The, the value of those things. Thus, we shouldn't value these things ultimately. So to kind of, you know, uh, move on to something from the past uh, and something, you know, somebody I've mentioned before is Aristotle. So Aristotle, you know, 4th century BC, of course, um, he talked about two interrelated ideas, telos, which is, you know, purpose and or an essence, right? And two, honoring or and rewarding civic virtue. So this this differs from the modern theories that I talked about, you know, with Rawls and with Nozick, um, primarily that it tries to separate fairness, uh, you know, rights from arguments about virtue, honor, and moral goodness. As you noticed, um, Nozick never really talked about the good, and I'll get into that in a second. Uh, but, you know, Aristotle, he tries to define the good. And uh, as we can see, uh, throughout time, people have took what Aristotle has said and kind of, uh, you know, built it into something uh, more. So before we get started, let's let's get into uh, some of the virtues that Aristotle talks about. Because, you know, as, it, as we all know, Aristotle is a Greek philosopher, a student of Plato. And, you know, his, his contributions were mainly, you know, his, his mainly, you know, huge, obviously, but they're mainly to metaphysics, you know, from ethics, you know, aesthetics, even politics. 
you know, he believed that the function of a human being was to engage in activity, the soul in accordance with virtue. And so Aristotle thought that two overriding virtues, you know, intellectual and moral. The intellectual virtues he claimed were acquired by inheritance and education and the moral ones through imitation of practice and habit. So the highest virtue, according to Aristotle, was intellectual contemplation. In addition, there's 12 additional virtues that can also be attributed to Aristotle. And uh, they go this, they go from this way. So first is courage. And that is, you know, in between bravery and valor, you know. Um, temperance, you know, which is self-control, restraint. Liberality, which is big-heartedness, you know, charity, generosity. Um, magnificence uh, and radiance, you know, being full of joy, pride, having self-satisfaction, honor, respect for ones and others, uh, reverence for yourself and others, admiration for others, um, good temper, you know, uh, level-headedness, being, you know, easy, easygoing, uh, friendliness, you know, uh, being social and being, you know, uh, malleable, and being able to you know, interact with others, uh, truthfulness, you know, being straightforward, frank, you know, uh, being honest to the point where people will see that as your defining character trait. You know, that's what, what Aristotle talked about, you know, wit, having a sense of humor, you know, um, enjoying uh, life in that kind of way, um, being sharp, you know, having friendship, right? Uh, camaraderie, companionship, injustice, you know, you know uh, fairness, impartiality. Uh, so that's the 12 virtues, you know, according to Aristotle. Um, and what we can see is, you know, these virtues have been given, uh, have been taken and used throughout the world. So uh, Catholic virtues, uh, many of them come from Aristotle and uh, the origins kind of have a connection to the Aristotelian method. So we talk about Aristotle, you know, justice is uh, teleological, you know, which requires the first, you know, this requires the first definition of telos. So, you know, like I said, you know, telos is purpose, is the end, is the essence. So justice is the purpose, right? Um, justice equals giving people what they deserve, what they what the ultimate end is you know for so for aristotle honor you know arguments about justice rights are often about virtues they honor and reward um political community rather than individuals operating to maximize their freedom so an example through this would be greek democracy and how that rose and created other types of democracies around the world and how it influenced our own um democracy uh our own republic and other democracies throughout the world um, but for Aristotle, the role of the good is a very interesting point. You know, Kant and Rawls argue that the right is prior to the good. So justice cannot depend on the arbitrary and changeable conceptions of the good. The, the good cannot be based on whims, right? So the right is prior to the good. Uh, for Rawls, you know, for Nozick, you know, he, all, he just basically avoids defining the good. For Nozick, in a sense, individuals free to determine are, you know, individuals are free to determine their own goals, their own good, you know, for themselves, as long as it doesn't interfere with the goals and actions of others. Um, but finally, you know, 
uh, another person from the 20th century that is quite interesting. And another theory um, is called the communitarian theory. So this is, you know, obligations to each other go beyond the other theories. Um, so the idea, you know, of democratic citizenship depends on the sense of community. And this was uh, basically brought to light in a lot of ways by Alistair McIntyre. So some of his quotes will kind of give you an idea of where he's going at. You know, he says a man is an essential, essentially a storytelling animal. The, the unity of human life is the unity of a narrative quest. Quest, you know, is the key word here. You know, uh, for the story of my life is always em- embedded in the story of the communities from which I derive my identity. So this was something that McIntyre believed and he thought this is the way we can reach uh, – to a more moral and just world. So uh, McIntyre believed that there was a moral disorder and the current moral disorder, you know, imagine a catastrophe where most scientific knowledge and the habits of science were lost. The, you know, then suppose the survivors try to reconstruct science from the leftover fragments. You know, honestly, they probably argue uh, and they probably produce gibberish that looked like science but really wasn't. Because they really didn't understand the methodologies and how they got there and the models and all this stuff and the math, you know, mathematics behind it, the physics and everything that goes behind it. So McIntyre thinks that there would be a slow – you know, McIntyre thinks there's been a slow catastrophe of what most moral knowledge – you know, so he thinks that most moral knowledge throughout time has been lost and this is the slow catastrophe. So he believed that we, ha- we have tried to reconstruct morality from fragments of, of the past. And we have produced gibberish that looks like morals but essentially really isn't. So McIntyre, you know, when he talks about, you know, the moral disorder, you know, so, you know, since the moral arguments are, you know, essentially gibberish, they can't be conclusive in deciding what to do. But we as a people must decide what to do so we adopt other methods. We use emotions, our passions, our self-interest, um, many different things that McIntyre goes into. You know, since we have incompatible desires, our politics has become, you know, very uh, polarized. And uh, for McIntyre, he talks about bringing back virtue. You know, so in his eyes, Aristotelian version of ethics with an end towards which we can aim, make sense of ought statements. So we ought to do – so here's a couple of the statements. We ought to do X to achieve this end is understandable. We ought to do X just because it's not. You know, absent, absent of any you know conception of what human beings are supposed to become, they're realized, they're telos, according to Aristotle. There can be no ethical theory because it simply has no purpose. For people with no destination, a roadmap has no value. So when he talks, when you know McIntyre talks about a membership in the community, you know some of the some of his other quotes is. Um, and this is a pretty interesting one. You can kind of get a better understanding of what he means by community. Uh, quote, I am never able to seek for the good or ex- exercise the virtues qua individual. I'm someone's son or daughter, someone else's cousin or uncle. I'm a citizen of this or that city, a member of this or that guild or profession. I belong to this clan, that tribe, this nation. These constitute the given of my life, my moral starting point. But, you know, what is the quest? You know, he talks about this quest. What is it? And for him, you know, a general idea of the good is the initial guide. You know, the goals of the quest only become understood through dealing with particular harms, dangers, temptations, and distractions along the way of life. 
along the journey of life. So ultimately, we, we see that there's different theories out there uh, of justice, you know, and the different theories, you know, compete in our minds, obviously, you know, especially if we even if we don't know it. These theories compete in our minds. And after, you know, you hear this uh, discussion and you go and look at some of this stuff and, you know, get a little more of an in-depth look because honestly, this is not a very in-depth look of a lot of these theories. This is a very broad, uh, you know, surface level look of these theories. But I thought it was important to give, you know, a surface look of, you know, utilitarianism as Bentham and Mill understood it, a look at Aristotle's, you know, telos and virtue. A look at Nozick's libertarianism, a look at, you know, McIntyre's communitarianism, a look at Rawls's, you know, theory of justice, his fairness, uh, and then look at, you know, Kant's, you know, categorical imperatives and his duties. I think it's essential for us to understand these things because through understanding these things, we can understand about how civilization is currently set up and how it can be set up in the future and how we as people can help set things up in the future. So – Again, you know, different factors sometimes compete with a different, you know, with a given theory. We we may belong to a different, you know, competing communities, you know, obligations of, uh, of family versus citizenship. So, I mean, obviously, a lot of what I talked talked about today is is quite complex and is uh, is is not very easy to um, to conceptualize. Without actually, you know, taking the time to think these things through. So, you know, all in all, justice is is a very important, very important point. Um, but you know, but I think another thing that we need to talk about is rights, because um, rights, justice, you know, and fairness. All these things, freedom, liberty, all these things are very important and essential ideas and concepts that we live with in society, but we might not necessarily know their origins or know their connections to our current state. So um, I think it's important to to look look into the uh, into you know rights essentially themselves. So when we talk about rights, at least you know the way we have to to view it is you know rights are a fund you know our fundamental political principle you know um they're based in morality of course um they summarize how human beings ought to be treated in a social context you know um but it also you know fundamentally deals with the way we ought to deal with others um so I guess it's important to understand that like the theory of justice, the theory of rights is very different and there's been many different interpretations of what is correct and what is incorrect, what's wrong and what's right about it. So let me go ahead and talk a little bit about negative and positive rights and I might have done this at a at an earlier time. But I kind of want to get into it again because I, there is a connection to um, to justice and to uh, where all this goes. So, you know, negative and positive rights are rights that, you know, oblige either action, you know, which is positive rights or inaction, which is negative rights. 
These obligations may either be of a legal or moral character. You know, the notion of positive and negative rights may also be applied to liberty rights. And that kind of goes into uh, a little bit of a different uh, theory of rights. But let's let's just start with negative and positive rights. So positive rights, some would argue that they don't exist and cannot exist. Uh, some would say that negative rights are essentially defined things that others cannot do to you. As such, there's there's no conflict possible, right? I can't do X to you, and you can't do X to me. There's no conflict. Um, some would some would argue that positive rights define things that must be done for you, products or services that must be given to you. Um, as such, you know, conflict and inherent conflict is. Some would make the argument that there's a conflict inherent in their nature. But I would make the argument that that necessarily isn't the truth. So you have – so a positive right, an example of this um, would be a right to an attorney that the state – if the state arrests you, uh, that they have – you have the right of attorney, which would mean that there is a positive right for you to have the – to gain the services of an attorney. Um, A negative right would be you know freedom from. I would I would guess, right? So negative rights or negative freedom means freedom from something, right? Your negative right imposes a negative duty on others, meaning you know, a responsibility to do nothing and not interfere in others' lives. Um you know, a negative freedom requires only that the other party respects the right by not preventing, you know, the main party in doing it. You know, examples of negative rights are rights to live, to be free, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from violence, freedom from slavery, uh, and property rights, freedom to own yourself and own your body, own your ability to do what you want with your body and your mind and your 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 you know your virtues and your values. And positive rights, like I talked about, means freedom to something. Uh, thus, your positive rights places a positive duty on others or a positive responsibility. You know, responsibility to offer something or act in a certain way. So an individual's positive right requires uh, the other party to respect it by complying with it. Um, An example of positive rights, like I said, would be um, uh, a job, you know, guaranteed job, uh, free schooling, free health care, minimum wage, other types of labor laws. That look to um, pose a duty on others for another. Um, so they, on you know, basically on a societal level, they the two types of rights are incompatible in some ways, but not in others. Like the right to an attorney, obviously that's our our system has was built on negative rights, uh, the American system, but still there is positive rights here and there uh, baked in. So, for instance, you cannot both have the right to be free while still being forced to work for others. You know, this doesn't happen, but obviously it's, it's you know, it's a contradiction. Uh, but, you know, today all states and the UN have a mixture of positive and negative rights uh, and positive and negative freedoms among their – among the human rights that they uh, protect. Um, so positive rights can still exist in a society or a state. Built on negative rights, but in the form of voluntary solutions, such as having a right to medical care if you have health insurance and stuff of the sort. So, 
again, to bring back to bring it back to Nozick, Nozick would view positive rights as violation of somebody's negative rights. So he believed that there was no ability to you know to merge these two in a society without violating the express rights of an individual. So, what can I say about you know the the concept of this and why these so again uh, different people's ideas on rights, people's ideas on justice, people's differences on these ideas. I, I believe these are what cause. Others to obviously have disagreements, but to you know then take those disagreements and then make assumptions on others. So I think it's important to first understand every side and the opposite side. So I think it's I think it's essential for us to to understand that fairness for people, um, equality, these things are are not all universal definitions. Nobody has a universal definition of equality. For many people, equality is equality of opportunity, um, equality to to go into a free environment and to work hard and gain merit and to to rise to the top. That's what equality means to some people. Uh, for other people, the, the idea of equality of uh, outcome, the idea that outcomes should be equal and that um, you know the world should be based on this type of you know rubric. But at least in my estimation, in my opinion, and I think I have some history to back me up, the idea of equality of outcome has has in practice been catastrophic at the least and murderous and genocidal at the worst. Take a place like Cambodia and the killing fields and all this other stuff. So I think it's essential to understand that um, under, understanding that the rights of others should never be infringed upon ever. And – my my own view on this as someone who considers myself a classical liberal, a, a right liberal, a, a libertarian, is I do agree with Nozick in, in a lot of ways. But I, I do understand that the other theories of justice have a place in society primarily because they've been compelling. They've been um, They've been convincing to a lot of people that this is the way societies, this is the way that um, justice should be viewed in the world. So again, I think it's essential for us to to go over this stuff and uh, again, a lot of this stuff is very out there and maybe a little esoteric <laughs> and uh not very, you know, practical some would, some would say or think. But I, I honestly think that the more we can understand the differences between each other is the more we can start building bridges between one another. So I guess I'm going to spend the last uh, part of this podcast talking about why I think it's essential for us to do that. Um, look, when we get into conversations about controversial topics, right? You know, like I, I mentioned earlier in this in this talk, you know, there's uh, there's three ways to think about controversial issues. There's you know the welfare, happiness of others. There's the freedoms of others, and then there's the virtue, the goodness in it. But I, I think it's important to understand and, and to to take stock in the idea that, you know, people will have disagreements about, you know, the controversial issues. But it's important to approach these things with an open mind, and it's important to approach these discussions with, you know, the ability to 
I mean, uh, intellectual, intellectual honesty, but also coming into the conversation in good faith. So what do I mean by good faith? And I, I will have a, <laughs> a discussion about this uh, more so later, later on. But because a good faith conversation to me is a sincere interaction that, you know, it focuses on being fair to the other person, being open and honest, regardless of the outcome of the interaction. You know, in bad faith is you know, to be double-minded, uh, double-hearted, to be duplicitous, uh, opposed, you know, as opposed to good faith, you know, it imports a subjective state of the mind. And the honesty is not what's what's trying to go on. There's there, what really is trying to happen is uh, there's a game going on. So I guess before you know, because now I went over the ideas of theory uh, th- in the theories of justice, you know, and some basic concepts of rights. You know, now we can kind of take these foundational things and kind of build upon these foundational things, and you know, and build our worldview. But the thing is, is like when we talk to others about you know their worldview. I said, you know, if you feel that the conversation is going to, uh, if the conversation is started in a bad, in a manner of bad faith, and the conversation is not leading towards learning, then I think it's an, I think it's essential number one to remove yourself from the conversation as nice as possible, as nicely as possible. Um, but I, I don't think it's it's essential. To, you know, to I don't think it's essential to get get offended because you know I'll be honest with you I've been in situations recently where I've I've gotten myself into some conversations that I thought were bad faith and I reacted in such a fashion and way that I was not very happy or proud of myself with dealing with it. So I think the most important thing we can take is if we're trying to have an honest, open conversation with others and the other person is not. And maybe the other person is trying to win and show others, you know, their dominance over you by winning. I think it's essential to understand that, you know, don't get offended by this game because this is just a game they're playing. And they don't know any better because they think this is the way to talk to people. They don't know any other way to talk to people. So and people tend to do this with with huge topics like justice, like rights, like uh, politics, like religion. Like philosophy, like psychology, sociology, all these topics that I that I like to talk about and that you guys you know like to listen you know and, and have conversations with others about. People like to play with these topics and use these topics for social brownie points. To use these topics to get a one up on one another, and I I want to be a constant voice in the throughout the internet. Where you know people, where there's Twitter, where's that you know that you know trash uh, trash bin, and then there's you know uh, YouTube where the comment section's terrible, and people are having these quote unquote uh, debates where people are just you know completely uncharitable to each other and uh, dismissing each other. This isn't how we fix things as a society. This isn't how we get to a better place. This is how we continue the cycle of, you know, um, straw manning people, mischaracterizing people and their opinions and their ideas and uh, pointing people out. So people will use tactics all the time. I've talked about some of these tactics, but people will sometimes try to point, oh, you believe in this and 
X person believes in that. Thus, you must agree on them with everything. Thus, that person's terrible. So, so are you. So they make these types of connections that have no basis in reality. But, you know, these things are meant to get you angry. These things are meant to have a reaction that will make you either admit your faults or, you know, flip out. So I think it's important to talk about stuff with an open heart and open mind. But I also think it's important to defend ourselves and defend yourselves whenever you can. Because, again, bad faith conversations are not a way to go further in life. And if you're a person that wants to have conversations with people, uh, you know, especially now that the holidays are coming around, we just had Thanksgiving, you know, people say avoid this, avoid that at conversation at Thanksgiving. I don't think so. I don't think it's important to avoid these things. I think it's important to figure out how to tiptoe around these topics in order to get people to engage in a more productive way. Because as you can see, I mean, there's, it amazes me how much people can't stand their families. And it also amazes, amazes me how much people, you know, can't have a conversation with anybody. It has to turn into a screaming match. It has to turn into, oh, this is this and that. I'm right and you're wrong and this is why you're wrong versus like let's just try to learn. So, you know, that's and that's kind of why I wanted to give you a really broad show today, a show that talked about multiple various opinions from different different authors, different writers, different philosophers, um, you know, from the 20th century, from the 4th century, from all from all over the spectrum. Primarily because I think this is the best way to to to, to learn is to get information on things that you might not necessarily have a big interest in, but you know you you have an interest in it so far that it affects your life. So you get involved, you get an understanding, then you can say, "Oh wow, I like you know I like what he had to say about John Rawls. I'm going to go ahead and really th- read a theory of justice." And then maybe you know what? Maybe from there, your positions change. Maybe your beliefs change. And, and then vice versa. Maybe you read Raw. Maybe you read Nozick, and you're like, "Wow, you know, I never thought about, you know, justice this way. I never thought about politics this way. I never thought about this is the way a government should be, you know, should be." And then you know, maybe you might change your positions on this way. But you know what? Regardless of what people do with the information that I give, I think the most important thing to understand, the most important thing to to conceptualize, is it's up to you. It's up to you, the listener. You come, you listen, you get the information that you need, and then you go out there and, and you know, add it to your worldview. Or, you know, if, if need be, you know, take down your worldview and you know, resurrect a new one. This is, this is what I mean by having a conversation with you all. And even though we're not talking, even though there's no you know, way to communicate right now. Uh, there's no live, you know, there's no live stream communication or whatever. It doesn't mean anything to me because primarily what I'm trying to do is put out ideas that I think are, I disagree with, I agree with, but they're interesting, right? They're interesting and they have meaning for a lot of people other than myself. Uh, and I think it's important to give, you know, a, a say to the more, out there stuff. I mean, people don't talk about justice or conceptualizations of justice and how these things came to be. People don't understand why their libertarian friend believes X, Y, and Z 
while the same libertarian friend does not know why their progressive friend believes that there should be universal health care and uh, universal um, you know, rights in, in terms of many different things, many different positive rights. Again, because most people don't go over this stuff, most people don't have the time to give you know a full reading of, of you know of Nozick stuff. Most people don't even know Anarchy, State, and Utopia is a book that talks about this stuff, or where a lot of libertarians get their um, understanding of government and, and all this stuff and political philosophy. And the same thing for left liberals like uh, Rawls. People don't understand that. That's where a lot of people get their understanding from. But I think if people from the other side can read the other read the other stuff you know and then try to understand the arguments as best as they can and then like i talked about in on the how to disagree kindly episode episode 3 of our show of the show taking those central points and refuting them if you can that's the best way to have these conversations with your friend that might disagree with you on how a government should be run or whether the government should be big or small you know whether the whether the government should focus on negative rights versus positive rights, whether society should redistribute wealth or not redistribute wealth, um, whether the society should have a progressive income tax versus a no income tax or versus a flat tax or versus a consumption tax, value added. I mean, there's so many different things that can happen and that can go through here, but we don't take the time to actually investigate. We just take time to point fingers and make you know play the blame game. So I, I think it's important for everybody, uh, myself included, to first take a step back, look at the things that we understand and that we believe, and then maybe go from there and then try to hear out what the opposite of what you believe in here. So again, I talked about Rawls, who was a left liberal, and Nozick, who's a right liberal, and they both had many disagreements and both of those points of views are – you know, foundational for 20th century uh, political philosophy in America. So I think if you want to understand, you know, this country a little bit better and understand, you know, why people on the right versus people on the left, libertarians, conservatives, progressives, liberals, if you want to understand why there's, you know, uh, you know, a disconnection in some ways, I think the most important thing we can do is look at the writings of people on other sides Take those, take the information in, absorb it, try not to be biased to the information. Remember that we have a bias towards our own side. Take that stuff in, absorb it, and then learn how to, you know, argue against it by focusing on the central points. But again, to understand the world, to understand society, to understand one another, to understand our family members, we have to understand their foundational beliefs. And, you know, I'm really happy today I was able to talk to you guys about you know, uh, some of the foundational principles and theories of justice and, and uh, some theories of rights. So again, I want to thank you all for listening. Um, I'm going to be have a sh- having a show coming to you in a couple of weeks, hopefully about the opioid crisis. I'm still looking uh, to see if I can bring in a psychologist who's an, uh, who's an expert on addiction. So hopefully I can get him in and we can have a discussion on uh, and about the opioid crisis in America and some of the solutions we can have from a governmental standpoint, but also from a psychological standpoint. Again, I want to thank you very much and have a wonderful day. Take care.